few years ago, we uh, went together through the book of First Peter, uh, in which we saw uh, Peter's encouragement to Christians to live their lives in the face of challenges, specifically the persecution that was inevitably coming to them. And here at the beginning of this new year, uh, we are looking through this second letter of Peter to Christians in his day, in which he is encouraging them again, but this time with a sense of urgency um, and significance uh, because Peter is, um, just like Paul is in 2 Timothy, convinced that the end of his life is near. And so, as his final words to the Christians that he has pastored and cared for, he wants to ensure that they are grounded and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at the beginning of this year, laying a foundation that you and I in 2023 might be grounded in the grace of the gospel and growing in the grace of the gospel and growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Here at the beginning of the year, maybe you, like us, are looking through the next 12 months and you are setting goals. Right? It's a fresh new year. The calendar has flipped, and maybe you're looking back at the year that you just came from, and you're looking forward at the year or the months that are ahead of you, and you have desires and you have a goal uh, for yourselves, or you're setting some goals. And oftentimes, when we're in this space and in this place, and we're looking out over 12 months at all of the things that we may want to accomplish or that we need to accomplish or everything that has been dumped on our plate by our boss, we are oftentimes easily overwhelmed with the amount of what is expected for us and what is expected of us. And this is only compounded when we feel like we have this overwhelming sense of expectation for ourselves, but at the same time are under-resourced. Right? Maybe if you see that specifically through our, with our teachers and our education, where there's a, a, mount, a mountain of expectations that are placed upon them, but not necessarily access to all the resources that they need. Medical uh, professionals, in the same sense, have this overwhelming sense of what is expected of them, but maybe under-resourced. We all know what it's like to be in that position where we feel like we are inadequate for whatever it is that is expected of us either because we aren't gifted enough, either because we don't have everything that it is that we need. Maybe you've been through an experience like that. For me, it was when we, as a, there was a group of friends of mine in college, especially some that felt led into Christian ministry, um, at the lead of one of my friends, Jason, Jason began rounding up some friends. He wanted to get an advanced start on his Greek when he got to seminary. And so he rallied up enough groups because he had, or uh, students because he had been told, if you get enough students together, then this certain professor would put on a Greek class and we would be able to get the foundation that we needed before we got to seminary. And so he started rallying friends and others and pulled enough of a class together that we would be able to take this Greek course and this professor would commit. Well, the professor might have committed, but it was very clear that he was not enthused to have this additional class put on his plate for the semester. And so he made it his life's mission to weed out as many as he could at the very beginning. 
And the, we walked into the four, first day. We had our Greek text in front of us, and he told us this is the way that it's going to work. You're going to read the book, the textbook. You're going to do all of the assignments, and then we'll discuss what it is that you've learned. Okay, well, that was great. We showed up the next class. We had read the first chapter. We had attempted the first assignments because we're teaching ourselves Greek. And he asked us to turn those assignments in and gave us a grade on them. And that was it. Week after week, we were expected to teach ourselves Greek before the professor taught us the Greek and were then graded upon it. And in a matter of about a few weeks, those of us who were concerned about our GPA realized, I can't afford this flunk. And so we left. And he weeded it out. You see similar tactics in law school. I have a friend who, is in, who went into law school, and he said, hey, listen, law school has a, casts a wide net to get as many people in, and they make that first year as hard as they possibly can because they're going to cull everybody that shouldn't be there. Maybe it's in the, you've seen it in the military, that they're going to take you through something where they're going to break you down and bring you to an impossible task to let you know that you cannot do this on your own. Our lives are full of overwhelming experiences and circumstances that oftentimes lead us, leave us with this overwhelming weight of inadequacy. This happens also when we look at the lives of other people. Through social media, as their lives are filtered through all of these different apps and, and social media accounts, and we look at everybody else, and we know that my life isn't put together, but theirs sure is. And we feel like there's something missing or something failing and something falling short. And we can also be overwhelmed when we stop and we think about spiritual commands in our spiritual lives, especially when we hear something like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And all of a sudden we feel overwhelmed by the weight of God's expectations for us. As God has expectations for how we live our lives and we feel inadequate to fulfill those expectations. As we think about what it is that God, how it is that God wants us to live. And when we think about those things and we feel that overwhelming sense of inadequacy regarding God's expectations, it will oftentimes lead us to one of two extremes. We will either attempt to continue to go on and on under the crushing weight of God's expectations for us, knowing that they are unattainable and leading towards legalism. Or we will see them as unattainable and we'll just buck the system altogether and go about living our lives the way that we want. As Peter begins this letter to the Christians, to you and to me, he wants to ground us in certain truths that will combat this problem of overwhelming inadequacy and instead propel us forward in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So here at the outset, in the very first verses of his letter, he wants to proclaim to us and ground us in one central truth, namely that in Christ, God has equipped us for everything that he expects of us. Look with me, if you will, in verses 1 through 4 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of Jesus, our Lord. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your grace the grace that is ours through your Son, Jesus Christ. The righteousness, Heavenly Father, that is granted to us not by any effort or work of our own, but simply because of your goodness and your glory, because of your grace and your mercy which abound to us. I pray this morning for clarity. I pray for comfort. I pray, Heavenly Father, for encouragement to be upon our hearts, Lord, it is so easy to become overwhelmed by the weight of expectations that we place upon ourselves as we read your word and attempt then, Heavenly Father, to be obedient to your commands. Lord God, I pray that this morning you would bring us to the place where we would be men and women who position ourselves as those who are humble and lowly and in need of you. Realizing, Heavenly Father, that you don't call us to anything that you won't equip us for. But, Heavenly Father, you will also never prop us up in such a way that we can become dependent upon ourselves. But instead, Heavenly Father, you are always calling us to come to you. Lord Jesus, you are always calling us to know you more. And in knowing you more, receive from you all that it is that we need for life and godliness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. As we work our way through the book of Second Peter, you will begin to see there's a sense of urgency to Peter, not only because of what I said earlier, that he is going to tell us that it has been revealed to him by the Lord that his life is very short, and so he wants to get out the essential things that he needs in this letter to Christians that he loves and cares for and very much is being obedient to his own command from 1 Peter chapter 5 to elders to pastor well those that God has given to them. And so out of a pastor's heart and a concern for their condition, but also for what confronts them, Peter is writing this letter, and at times it's going to sound very harsh and very hard because he is wanting to be very, very clear. Not only because his time is short, but because we will see in chapter 2, there are false teachers who have embedded themselves and even been raised up within the church who are teaching a very false gospel. And Paul wants, or not Paul, Peter wants to confront them and confront his people that they may be grounded so that they can stand against the false teachings that are coming and that they might continue to grow in the truth and not this false teaching. He loves them. He's concerned for them. And so he is writing to them to encourage them to continue to live lives of godliness. You see, in the Christian life and in the, in the response to the gospel, the pendulum can swing in one of two ways. The one way, like I said just a few moments ago, can be to tend towards legalism, 
to take the rules or the expectations and the commands of Scripture and turn our relationship with Christ into this religious experience by which if I keep all the right rules, I end up staying or getting into and staying in good favor with God. And so to turn it into this system that I can manage if I know all the right things to do, that's legalism. And we went through the book of Galatians recently together, and if you'll remember, Paul takes on this legalistic tendency, and he pulls the people back, the Galatians, back to a life anchored in grace, in which God has adopted them and transformed them and freed them from all of the expectations of the law, that he has lavished upon them his love. And so he calls them away from a legalistic lifestyle and towards a life of grace. Now, if we really properly understand Paul's teaching of grace, when we read Scripture, the answer that we're going to come up with is, well, Paul, if that's what grace is, then I can do whatever I want and there's never any consequences because God's grace is always there to pour out upon me. And the more that I sin, the more grace God pours on me. And the more God gets to pour out grace, the more God is glorified. So I can just live a life doing whatever I want. If we really properly understand biblical grace, that's the conclusion that we will want to go to. How do I know that? Because that's the conclusion that Paul assumes people are going to take away from his teaching in Romans. When he asks that question, so what then? Should we just sin more and more so that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. So what we have is the legalism on the other side and the pendulum can then swing to this life of license. God's grace is a license for me to sin all that I want. And so whereas Galatians is written by Paul to counter legalism, 2 Peter is written by Peter to counter license and licentious lifestyles, where I am going to live out a life of lust and greed. That's what he condemns these false teachers for. They are living lives of lust and sexual sin and greed as they amass for themselves wealth at the expense of the well-being of their people. And they're justifying it with their teachings of Scripture. And Peter says that's not okay. And so it's a struggle in the Christian life to find this balance between the freedom that we have because of grace and the expectations that we have to live godly lives. And so at the outset, Peter introduces himself in a humble way as a servant of God, a servant of Jesus Christ, but also he asserts his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ as he lays out his teaching against license. And so in the verses that we've read, again, that's kind of an overview of Peter. We'll continue to flesh that out. But in these verses, if, if especially as Peter wants to bring us back and into a life and an understanding that God expects from us godliness in the lives that we live. He expects that we live obedient to his commands, righteous lives. Peter wants to lay the foundation first that we understand God always equips us for everything that he expects of us. And so we're not trying to live these godly lives in our own strength. Instead, in these verses, Peter identifies three things that God has given to us that confront those sources of inadequacy on the one hand, but also a spirit of pride on the other that we might face. The first thing that Paul says God gives to us is a faith that is equal to the apostles. 
In, chapter, or in verse 1, he introduces himself, Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's asserting his authority there as an apostle. But his audience is those who have received a faith in equal standing with ours. Who is ours? It's Peter and the apostles. If you, like my ESV translation, have that word obtained there, I don't think that that's the best translation. It's better if your translation says we have received a faith that is equal in standing to that of the apostles. Why? Because the word that Peter uses here is a word used of a political position, not of a political position that has been earned by merit. I have climbed the ranks and achieved this place, but instead a political position that has been granted to someone specifically by the casting of a lot by the rolling of the dice, by the drawing of straws. Not necessarily based on any merit of their own, but simply because the one that is in authority has placed them in this position. And so Peter here says that you and I have received from God something that is foreign to us, namely it is our faith. Now the question becomes, what is that faith? Because when we talk about the faith, we can think about two different things. The faith on the one hand being the system of beliefs, the doctrines that we hold. We've received those from Scripture, right? It's, I believe it's Jude that's going to tell us that we are supposed to hold fast to the, um, the, the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. He's talking about the teachings of Scripture and the apostles. That's not the faith that Peter is talking about here. Peter instead is talking about this relational knowledge and belief in Christ that has been gifted to us by God through the work and the person of Jesus. He says, we have received this faith of equal standing to the apostles by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the way that he's talking about that, God and Savior are two words used to describe Jesus. This is one of the only places in the New Testament that we find Jesus specifically identified by the writer as God. Highlight this, circle this. This is one of the places where an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ clearly teaches that Jesus is not just some created deity or a second something else. He is God incarnate. And it's the righteous life of Jesus Christ, sacrificed for you and for me, that gives to us a righteousness that is not our own. And it's that same righteousness of Jesus Christ that ensures that he gives that gift of faith and righteousness and forgiveness of our sins equally. Peter is talking here to maybe a second and a third generation of Christians. And he wants them to know, he wants you and me to know now thousands of years later that the faith that we have received from God is of equal standing with the people who walked and talked with Jesus. It can be so easy for us sometimes to think that Peter and James and John and the other people that walked and talked and spoke with Jesus had it so much easier. That they are even to a place when we think about the 12 apostles who were specifically sent out by Jesus and given authority to teach and found the church, that they are somehow super Christians. It can be easy for us as believers in Jesus Christ to look at the pastorate, to look at missionaries and put them in some other class of Christianity. Brothers and sisters, God's family 
is not like a corporate ladder that we climb based on our successes and in which we have more authority and power and favor with God because we've outperformed everybody else. And yet that is so often how we look at one another. And when we begin comparing our lives and our growth and our maturity to the pastor or to the Billy Grahams or the Charles Spurgeons, we begin to then feel shame that we are not somehow in a different place. Because we will feel then like God loves him or her so much more than me. Otherwise, why would God give them these gifts and not me these gifts? It can be so easy for us to walk into a Bible study or a, a discipleship group. And because there's someone who, in my situation, I've read the text and studied the text before you walk in the door, I know all the answers to the questions I'm going to ask before I ask them. And I'm leading you in that place. We can get this overwhelming sense of inadequacy. And then our life in Christ is just that much more burdensome because we're comparing ourselves to others. What Peter wants you and I to understand is no. God's family is not a family where there's a pecking order and a favoritism with God. God shows no partiality. He loves all of his children the same. And the gift of faith, saving faith, salvation is flat and level ground at the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we obtain this knowledge, verse 2, the knowledge that we receive of, of God and of Jesus Christ, then in that we receive the exact same gift in the exact same amount in the exact same way. There's no such thing as a more favored Christian than me. Because God loves his children the same. Because God loves Christ fully and in every way that he possibly can be. And if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. And so all of your weaknesses and all of your successes get leveled out because they never, never your, your failures never diminish God's love for Jesus Christ. Your successes never elevate God's love for Jesus Christ. He is fully satisfied in Christ and therefore fully satisfied in all who know him. Verse 2, the knowledge that we have of God and Jesus Christ. And so we can be encouraged this morning and be comforted this morning that oftentimes that narrative that we allow to run in our head that says God is somehow more in love with them than God is with me is just false. God is fully satisfied with Jesus and therefore if I am in Christ and share this knowledge, this knowing, this relationship with Jesus, and this idea of knowledge, I'm hounding on it because you're going to hear it repeated throughout 2 Peter, this intimate relationship with Christ grants us God's grace and his peace. And it's only as we grow deeper in that knowledge and relationship with Christ that the grace and peace of the gospel is multiplied to us, which is Paul's prayer for these Christians in verse 2. And so the question before we run on to the next thing is to ask that question, is this letter written to you? Peter makes his audience clear. 
He is writing to those who have received a faith equal to his own. He's writing to Christians. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this letter is for you. But if you are here this morning and you have not come to know, not just about Jesus Christ, have head knowledge and a book knowledge of the Bible and the objective doctrines of Christianity, but to experience this personal faith and trust in and relationship with Jesus Christ, then this letter is not to you yet. And the invitation from the outset to you is to receive this faith from God, to trust in Christ, to come to know Him not just as God, but as Savior, to know Him for the forgiveness of your sins, to trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins, and receive from Him everything that we're about to talk about. My invitation to you, whether you're here or you're joining us online, is right here, right now. Give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ and trust in Him. And then receive from Him the next things that Peter talks about as promises. God, not only, not only do we receive this faith in equal standing with the apostles from God, in verse 3 he tells us that God has given to us everything that we need for the godly life that He expects from us. Verse 3, the divine power of Jesus Christ. We learn from Scripture, and we learn from that verse, uh, verse 1, that Jesus Christ is God and Savior. Therefore, Jesus Christ as God, and throughout the rest of the New Testament, we know that all things that were created, according to John chapter 1, that were created, everything that exists came into existence through Jesus Christ, the Word who took on flesh. So this one who has the power to create universes, the one who is granted all authority in heaven and on earth, according to Matthew 28, is the one who gives to the children of God everything. All things. What does he give us? All things. Say that with me. All things. Everything pertaining to life and godliness has, has been given to us in Christ. It makes me think about that passage of Scripture when the apostles come to Jesus Christ and they ask him for more faith, right? Would you give us more, grant us more faith that we might pray in more faith? And Jesus' response is, you don't understand the tiniest amount of true faith. Faith the size of a mustard seed would do what? Pick up a mountain and throw it in the ocean. Jesus says, you don't need more faith more trust, more belief, you need to learn to exercise what little you have. And the more that you exercise those muscles of faith, you'll grow in faith, but you must start with what little you have been given and be faithful with what little has been given. Christ says everything that you need, a reservoir of grace, a reservoir of peace, a reservoir of everything that you could need for life and godliness is already yours. The problem with us is we forget that. And we live this life trying to tap into the tank of what we have built instead of plug into the reservoir of what God has for us. Is it any wonder we feel overwhelmed and inadequate? 
when I'm trying to scrape by on all of the godliness that I can work up in myself instead of plugging into the source of life and godliness. And so that's why Peter says that everything we need for life and godliness is ours through the knowledge again, this intimate understanding and personal relationship with Jesus Christ who's called us by His glory and His excellence. He is the perfect standard. He is the one that emanates glory from His very personhood. And by that explanation, or that 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 display of glory and moral excellence, God calls us into a life that reflects that glory and excellence through godliness. Oftentimes, maybe you'll hear it talked about, especially when you're talking with a lost friend. Maybe you've heard that person who says, you know what, listen, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to live my life the way that I want to live it, and I'm going to enjoy the life that I have. And I'm going to have all the fun that I need. And then when the time is right at the last minute, that's when I'll surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Because the world and even we at times live with this idea that we can either have a good life or a godly life. We can either have fun or we can live in faith. And there is this chasm that exists between life on this hand and godliness on that hand. And I don't want to live that soul-crushing life where all of the fun is sucked out of my life because I don't get to do all of the things that my friends and my co-workers and my colleagues and my, the members of my community that they get to just live up and enjoy their lives. Peter here combines life and godliness. Life and godliness. Not life or godliness. He says all that we need for life. Jesus said, I came, the thief, Satan, comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus came to give us life now in the presence, not just some future thing on the other side of death, not just some eternity when Jesus returns and all things are made new, Life here and now, a life of joy and peace and grace, a life of fun, a life of laughter, a life of song, a life of creativity, a life that enjoys the very good gifts that God has given to us in the way that he created the world to appreciate beauty and to love good food. I expected an amen from my Southern Baptist on that one. God created us to taste He created us to experience the the emotional impact of a beautiful piece of music. He He created every pleasure that you and I are intended to experience and can experience in this life and wants us to experience it through godliness. Because there are certain pleasures and things that we can enjoy in this life, but when we go beyond the boundaries that God has set for them, they become dangerous. And so God calls us to life and godliness. There is no dichotomy or separation between life and godliness. But Christ has given to us everything, not just for your past salvation and for the the forgiveness of your sins, 
Let's be real honest. The majority of Christians in this room, in this world, we're really solid rock foundation on I'm forgiven by Jesus Christ. But there is this teaching within the church that is subtle and that is there that says Jesus has done everything necessary for my salvation, but my sanctification is now somehow, my growing in godliness and my growing in grace, that's now dependent upon me. No, it's not. Everything that you need for your salvation is done in Jesus. And everything that you need to live in grace tomorrow and Tuesday and Friday and next Thursday and April 25th, I don't know why, that's just what's there. Everything that you need for life now. You see, there's a lot of us that live with this, okay, my past salvation is secure and my future glory and my my citizenship in heaven is secure. But we're living in this limbo where we feel completely unequipped for the life now. But that's not what Peter teaches. Everything you need for life, for godly life now is yours in Jesus Christ. And so he invites us to know him, to trust in him. That's not the only thing. Those aren't the only things God gives us. God also gives us a certain transformation. So verse 2, we have obtained a faith. Verse 3, he has granted us all things. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See, God doesn't merely change our past. He doesn't merely wipe our slate clean in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What God also does is transform our very nature in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we talk about when we talk about the new birth in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. That we are born again believers in Jesus Christ. It means that that old nature, that nature that ran away from God, that nature that wanted something other than godliness, that nature that wanted to indulge my sins and my lusts and my greeds and everything else, that old person is dead. And I am born again in life of Jesus Christ. And I have received now a new nature, A nature that is sensitive to the prompting and the wants and the desires of the Lord. That is desiring to worship God for his glory and for his goodness. And so when we wrestle with that nature, that's what Paul is talking about. That that old nature, that sinful nature is still wrestling for control of his life. And daily we are to put that old self to death, the flesh, as we pursue faith in Jesus Christ. And run after Jesus Christ as we are promised by Peter right here, the promises of God and the promises of God is that we are partakers of the divine nature. Now there's some pagan theologies and teachings that would say that every one of us are little gods or that we have a part of the godness of the universe inside of us. That's not what Peter's talking about here when he says that we become partakers of the divine nature. You will never be like God in the sense of sharing Godhood. We are always and always will have always been and always will be created beings subject to the Lord. Nevertheless, we are those created in the image of God. 
and we now share in. That word partaking there, it's the same word that we see translated throughout the rest of the New Testament as fellowshipping with. When we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we exist in koinonia, a fellowship with one another, what Peter is saying here is that in Christ and through Christ and because of the promises of God, you and I now have an intimate fellowship with the very nature of God such that the things that God wants, we want. Such that the things that God loves and glorifies and glories in, becomes things that we love and glorify in and glory in. And we share in that having escaped. You see, there's a promise even in that that says that you and I, who are so easily and often overwhelmed by sin, need to be constantly reminded of the fact that because of the work of Jesus Christ, we've been set free from sin. And we can put it aside. And that sin is not something that we need be enslaved to anymore because Jesus has not only forgiven us, He's justified us, He has rescued and redeemed us. The language of redemption throughout the New Testament is the language of the slave market. The one who is enslaved by someone and yet is rescued from that slavery because someone has paid the price for their freedom. And Peter here is emphasizing the fact that everyone who is in Christ and has this knowledge of Jesus Christ has, been, has escaped from that corruption that comes from evil desires. And so we need not live enslaved to our sin anymore. But instead, we can trust in Jesus Christ that His promises are true and that He has given them to you and to me. And the one who has the power to create universes certainly has the power to keep His promises. And so we can trust in Him. The question is, are we trusting in Him? There's a significant difference in understanding this and actually living this. What should we do when we're overwhelmed and under-resourced in our lives? What did I need in that Greek class? I needed someone who understood this to come alongside of me and resource me by helping me, by being there to answer questions and give guidance and help me through that. In an, in an infinitely greater way, Jesus Christ is the ultimate resource for everything that we will need for the life that God expects of His children. And we have a choice when we wake up every single day this year. I can either do this in my own strength or I can grow in grace and knowledge that intimate knowing of who Jesus is by moving deeper into Him and investing in my relationship with Him and entrusting Him and exercising that faith on a daily basis, moment by moment. So my question in conclusion to you is, are you anchored to a foundation of God's grace through that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ who gives you faith, empowers your life, and transforms your soul? If not, then today is the day 
then I invite you, you can't, God doesn't guarantee you tomorrow. You don't get to know when that time is going to be right and right for you to, at the last minute, give yourself to Jesus Christ. And there is no difference between a true life of joy and peace and happiness and beauty and godliness. Because only God is truly beautiful and joyous and glorious. But if you're here today and you can say, I have obtained this faith, then I challenge you to ask yourself, why is it that life is so overwhelming to you? Is it because you're dependent upon you? If so, then please, stop trying and trust instead in Jesus. Because life will always be too overwhelming for you and for me. It will never be too overwhelming for him. Would you trust in Jesus today?